Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LaCaine. When Michael Harrington wrote The Other America in 1962, he shocked the nation by making poverty in America visible. He described vividly the conditions of the relatively small number of people who lived in poverty. Now, the majority of Americans are struggling financially. More than half of Americans struggle to pay for housing and food each month. When they can't pay the bills, they borrow money and get into debt or sometimes get evicted and go hungry. In a country as wealthy as the United States, why are so many people struggling to make ends meet? How did this happen? And what can we do about it? Our guest today will help us answer these important questions and more. Celine Marie Pascal has studied and talked to Americans struggling financially. She describes their reality movingly in her new book, Living on the Edge, When Hard Times Become a Way of Life. She is a professor of sociology at American University. Celine Marie Pascal, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you, Eleanor. I'm really delighted to be here. I really enjoyed uh, your book. I don't know if you can say enjoyed because it's a pretty grim picture <laughs> that you paint here. Uh, but I so appreciated what you did. And I thought a lot about uh, Michael Harrington as I read your book. And I know you mentioned him in the book. Um, but what really struck me was just how many more people now are struggling economically than were back in the 1960s or 70s. So uh, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I started out by just really wanting to understand the daily circumstances of people who are living in precarious economic situations. But as my research unfolded, a bigger theme emerged. And, um, you know, in sociology, we think of inequality as a nexus of power. And so to understand poverty, it isn't enough just to have insight into daily lives or statistics about the numbers of people. We need to understand how economic struggles are actually produced and exacerbated by policies and practices that make other people wealthy. So as a result, this book um, became something that showcases people's lives, but it also is a story of how workers across the country have been abandoned by their government and exploited by corporations. Right, and I, I like that about your book. It's a really good blend of some of the personal stories of the people that you talk with as you went around the country for the year, interviewing and connecting with people, and your analysis of what is behind this. How did these people get in this situation? And what do we do about it, more importantly? So let's uh, talk about kind of both the people you met and Well, it depends on how you divide the pie, right? Uh, so we know that about 51% of workers are earning $35,000 a year or less. 51% of workers, these are people working full-time, earn 35000 or less. More than full-time. Okay. Yep. And they're earning $35,000 or less, more than half the workers. Right. Wow. That's pretty shocking in itself. Um, another way to look at it would be um, before the pandemic um, the, in uh, the late winter, like December of 2019, was it, um, when we had nearly had a government shutdown and uh, workers were living, federal contractors were living paycheck to paycheck, right? We were seeing that 65 to 80% of the population couldn't afford a $400 unexpected expense because they had no savings. So um, if you use the federal poverty line, the picture looks really different, right? But if you're looking at what people are actually earning and what you need 
to be able to afford a place to live and keep food on the table, we have a very different picture of the country. Right. Um, I'm having, uh, you're coming off as a little soft. I'm wondering if you could increase your volume in some way. Thanks for telling me. Yes, I can. Because you have an important message and I want to make sure we all hear it. Is that better? Much better. Great. That's great. Thank you so much for that. I don't oh, want anyone I don't want anyone to miss a, a word of your wisdom here. So so this is a very widespread situation where really the majority of people are struggling economically in our country and you have a, another shocking statistic in your book about um the entire bottom half of America owns just 1.3% of the wealth. Right. That is like staggering to me. And we are more stratified economically in the United States now than Great Britain, um, which, remember, we fought a revolution to get away <laughs> from <laughs> that whole situation. And yet here we are. Uh, now in this predicament. So what are the reasons you think we're here? Like, as I know, some people think we had Michael Harrington launch the other America. The country was shocked at how people, some people were living in this country. At that point, I think it was maybe around 15%. And it launched the war in poverty, like John F. Kennedy read the article and it inspired the warm power. And there actually was a decrease in um, the levels of poverty in the country. But what it, what I see is it's not just about who fits in the parameter of what we define as poverty per se, because that number, as you rightly criticize is not really connected to what it takes to live uh, in today's society. But what really concerns me, this is the norm now. It is the majority experience of being an American is you're not really in the middle class. You're, you know, the majority of people are really struggling here. So what are some of the factors contribute to that level of economic inequality? Well, Eleanor, I think you put it exactly right that we have a bifurcated economy now where there are high wage, um, highly skilled jobs, and then there are low wage, low skilled jobs, and very little in between. What we used to have as a middle class is really um, just about gone. What's happened, um, we have kind of a perfect storm. One is that businesses... Um, have moved manufacturing out of the country. We've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. We've lost a lot of middle the middle income jobs. And these have been replaced largely by service industry jobs. So even when you look at uh, national statistics about employment and it looks rosy, we've got you know, record employment, you still have massive numbers of people who are underemployed because they're working um, at low wage jobs. And a strategy that many of these employers use is to hire people just under full time so they don't have to pay benefits. And this leaves workers without any benefits and often needing to work multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. So there's this aspect of, um, you know, the profits are rapidly increasing in the service industry for the companies that own businesses, while incomes are shrinking for those who are working in it, but you have increasing rents, you have the high cost of food, there's kind of a, a perfect storm. And behind it all is a government that has been much more supportive of the needs and interests of businesses than they have been of working people. And I don't mean that in a Democrat or Republican kind of thing. I think both, they're quite different, but neither party has really put the interests of working people on the fore. Right, well, uh, one dramatic example of where the government puts the interests of the business above 
the working people is what you talked about when companies move their manufacturing out of the country and moving jobs overseas, they had a tax subsidy from the US government for that. And um, I, I will say there are quite a number of really good people in uh, the Congress, good Democrats in particular, who struggle mightily to fight for working people, be like Senator Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, of course, Bernie Sanders from Vermont, and uh, quite a number of them really are fighting to try and address the fact that the government actually does work more in favor of the top 1%, wealthy individuals, wealthy corporations, than it does for the average working people. And that has gone on now for decades. And you're, you are right to kind of point out that that problem is uh, instead of the government helping to modify and deal with the wealth inequality that we have, it actually it's making it worse overall. Absolutely. And we are watching that with Manchin right now and Cinnamon as they're trying to block the Build Back Better Act, um, which would provide um, social infrastructure that families really could use. There to get into office now, you you need the support of corporations. For Mansion, it's the coal industry. For cinema, it's uh, pharmaceuticals and medical industries. They're the ones they're loyal to, not to the people who voted them into office. We see that over and again that um, because our campaigns are privately financed and our politicians are not only paid by lobbyists, you know, given gifts by lobbyists, but lobbyists even have come now to write legislation for them. So we're in a place where there is a collusion between business and government that works to enrich both of them at the expense of the needs of working people. Yeah, and this goes back to, uh, I think it was the Renaissance where the Medici family in Italy said, basically, we amass wealth through business, and then we use our wealth to get more power in the government, and then we use our power in government to get more wealth. <laughs> and that's exactly what's going on right now. Right. So, um, and so... You know, I've read a lot about the economic data. Actually, uh, I've got a degree in economics from Yale and um, have really paid attention. And I come from, you, it'd be hard to describe my family. It, was, it started off as working class because my father was a police officer. Then my parents divorced and my mother was raising four children on her own. So we were poor. And then she got a job working to start a travel agency and we grew into the lower middle class. So I was kind of touching them all. And uh, it, it was, it's been quite a while. Of course, all of that is looking backwards in the time. It just is what it is. So, um, but it's even with all that I've lived and all that I know about the data and the economy and how hard it is for so many people. I was really surprised by some of the uh, things that I learned in your book. And one of the things that really hit me was how much money is being made off of the backs of struggling families. And you talk about, you know, these are the people who really have not that much and you would think the companies would leave them alone and, you know, go off to, you know, go look for the top 10%. That's where the money is. And like, wasn't it Willie Sutton? Why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. <laughs> and of course, some companies do do that. But the fact that companies are targeting these lower income, struggling people, and they're so predatory about trying to squeeze squeeze what little they have out of them for their profits. Can you talk a little bit about who is doing that, like the loans? Absolutely. Eleanor, you know, it was, I hate to sound naive. I mean, I grew up, uh, 
have in a family that had trouble keeping food on the table. I'm a sociologist. I'm, I know about inequalities. I've experienced it um, personally and uh, as a scholar, but it really did shock me to see how much money, how profitable poverty is. I expect poverty to be profitable for you know landlords or for employers. But when I looked at dollar stores as a massive investment for you know kind of a recession-proof business that enabled, um, oh my gosh, dollar stores are like one of the most successful corporations uh, on the Forbes 500 list now. And it's because they're selling 16 ounces of milk for a dollar, which gives a family milk on the table. That's great. But that's the equivalent of having an $8 gallon of milk, which I mean, not even Whole Foods charges that. So the amount of money that people save by buying smaller quantities, you know, by, that makes it affordable. They're actually not saving. They're being gouged but they're not in a place where they have alternatives. So that's one way that people, uh, that businesses move into to struggling communities and make money off of them. Another way is through payday loans, uh, which have exorbitant interest rates. Uh, if you can't make your bills or you get into, um, uh, you have a medical problem or a family problem, you have to borrow money, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to repay that loan. In fact, payday loan companies bank on people not being able to repay within the two-week window. And then there are more fees and interest rates and things roll over and you get sunk deeper and deeper into debt. Another way that uh, companies are doing this is if you're a, if you're a struggling family, it seems unsurprising that you would have a high debt to income ratio that you that when you go for a loan that's what banks look for you know like how much income do they have how much debt do they have and if the debt seems disproportionate to the income instead of saying we're not going to lend to you they say well we're going to lend to you but only at a high interest rate and so people who need to take out a car loan because the country's never invested in public transportation in rural areas. If you don't have a car, you don't have a job. So people will buy a car, but then they have to get these high interest loans to do that, which um, again, push them deeper into debt and make it harder to, uh, to get out of poverty. So those are just some basic examples of ways that uh, companies actually seek out people who are struggling because it's so profitable. When, you know, it seemed to me like, well, gosh, if, if somebody can't pay on their car loan, you know, you're trying to wring blood out of a stone to get them to pay if they're gonna forfeit on your debt. So I was really surprised when Ellison in Standing Rock um, told me that she, that's what happened to her. She had taken out this loan. It was a payday loan, actually. And before she could pay it back, she lost her job. And then, you know, what do you do? Well, they took her to court. And in at court, you have the choice of um, forfeiting assets, which in this case would have to be a vehicle because she didn't own anything else, or having your wages garnished in a future job. So of course, she was really happy that they were going to garnish her wages when she finally got a job because she wouldn't get a job unless she had a car. It's a circle. And it just is like quicksand that pulls people deeper into debt, making it harder and harder to get out, even though they're working full time, often more than full time. Yeah, yeah it's like a form of indentured servitude that the, the people they don't have much anyway the payday lenders loan them the monies for the two weeks at very high rates 
Like, what are some of the rates? If you, if I, if I were to take out a loan for two weeks, what would they charge roughly? Oh well, let me tell you. I, I don't know that I can pull that off from the top of my head. There are some of them are six hundred percent interest rates. So let me right. pull it out of the but, book. That's okay. That's okay. you know we're 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 just saying that you're not talking about a ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent, even thirty percent people no, might pay on no. their credit card. You're talking hundreds and hundreds, like many times more than what the original loan was. You're paying in an interest rate, and uh, yeah. people, like you said, the companies count on people not paying not being able to pay it back in the two weeks. So then now you've got fees and fines on top of this already exorbitant interest rate. And then these the companies take the workers to court and they will garnish their future wages. So when the person does continue to work or gets another job, if they've lost the job, like the woman you mentioned, those wages are being taken uh, by the payday lender. And these are not little community companies, by the way. Uh, my husband was telling me some of these payday lenders, they're actually like branches of giant corporations like JP Morgan and Chase. And yes. uh, like, who are some of the companies behind these predatory lending companies? Um, what I did, well, I couldn't tell you everywhere how they are. When someone took out a loan in a in their community, I researched that company, and that turned out to be one main financial more often than not. Yeah, but there are, you know, this the idea of um, payday loan companies. You see payday loan outlets everywhere. In a way, it's a more ruthless version of credit card debt, right? right. You take out credit card debt. Um, if you're not in the struggle, well, even if you are in the struggling class, but many of us carry credit card debt and we don't really stop to think about, especially during this pandemic, how that keeps um, rolling forward, compounding. And that's the case with uh, payday loans. When Ellison finally got a job, all of the interest had been compounding on her payday loan. So it wasn't like time stood still for her to get a job and then repay the loan. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting a low wage job and it's already coming off the top of that, I mean, you can see what's happening to people. It's, it's grim. It is. Now I am shocked by what I learned from your book about these payday lenders. I mean, I knew they were there and I knew they charged a lot. This is the kind of thing I would expect to happen in a third world country, honestly, where there was a very weak or uh, completely corrupt national government. <laughs> and um, But I thought, at least in the United States, there was some recourse people have, consumer protection. And in fact, for a long time, states had put ceilings on the amount that of interest people could charge, whether, you know, the payday loan or the credit card uh, interest, there was a, a limit. And I think they were called the usury rates. There was a ceiling on what could be done. But then one by one, uh, all the, those state laws were repealed. Why? I'm sure it was intensive lobbying by companies like JP Morgan or the, or the ones that are behind the payday lenders or the credit card loans where they're making billions of dollars off of the interest rate. They're making more money in some cases off of the interest rate and the fees and the fines than they are off of the original loan. Oh, absolutely. That That's their bread and butter. And there are states now, I think in the book, I note about half a dozen um, Texas um, being among them. So you, you could almost guess which, you know, the, the states that really favor deregulation that have no limits. Um, there are other states of California fought for five years to try to limit the interest rates on payday loans. And they finally succeeded, but it was, it was a pretty hollow success, I think. Uh, and the industry comes out with more lobbyists and more money than you can imagine to fight this back. 
Ohio did a really good job of beating back um, payday lenders and creating a system that is more just for people. But it's it's a big problem. Yeah, well, we can hope that more states will learn from Ohio and and stand up to these predatory lenders. There's another way that companies take advantage of these kind of lower wealth. I don't know exactly what to call them. You call them struggling families. I think that's a good phrase. They're, we're not just talking about poor people. That's what I want to make clear. I mean, in my mind, poor people, it's probably you're thinking 10 or 15 percent of the population that's really has very little resource. But we're talking here about like you, the majority of people making under thirty five thousand dollars a year. Um, May I jump in? Go, please. Yeah. I think part of the difficulty that we have with this is that we don't have a language for talking about class, right? There's a class war at the turn of the century, and then the working people lost. And here we are with, you know, we're all middle class. That's the narrative, right? Right. So I have never met anyone that thought of themselves as poor as long as they had a roof over their head. Mm Mm-hmm. So there is this big mythological middle class. And I notice in uh, Living on the Edge that my family believed we were middle class, even when um, we couldn't keep food on the table, right? We were still middle class. One of the people I interview in the book, Michael Chase, talks a lot about, you know, he's working two jobs. He can't afford Um, He's living with three roommates that he finds really stressful, and he still can't be sure that he will pay his rent every month because his hours are never guaranteed. He doesn't think of himself as poor. Most of the people that I talked to identified themselves as members, as struggling, right, of working, thinking that, you know, they're not really making it, but it's going to get better sometime down the line. So they're always struggling. And I think there's a lot of dignity in that phrase. One, because they claimed it for themselves. And two, because there is, um, the assessment is very positive, right? It isn't like that we have a lot of judgments about poor people. Mm-hmm. The poverty line that we use to measure poverty is so out of whack that we have no realistic standard for poverty. So when we think of, you know, what what is poverty? Is it not being able to reliably pay your bills? Is it, um, for Michael, it was, you know, families who didn't have running water. I think that's the wrong standard. And um, I hope that most of the listeners will agree that that's completely the wrong standard to be using in the U.S. for poverty. Right. Well, you know, and I think part of it, too, is like my mother told me years later, she said, I didn't know we were poor until she was in the doctor's office waiting room and she read one of the magazines and she was like, oh, my God, we're poor. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. She hadn't seen the data. She didn't know what they what the categories were. It's like, oh, we're poor. Imagine that. But struggling, it does have dignity and it means people are fighting. And you talk a lot about the resilience of people in face of, you know, getting low wages or no wages, trying to paying all these extra like eight dollars a gallon for milk because they have to buy it in small amounts because they can't afford to buy a whole gallon and the payday lenders and so on. And yet the resilience that people have and uh <clears throat> trying to deal with it, but it's like, really, life shouldn't be that hard. Um, and uh, there's another way, too. We talked about low-wage workers. You mentioned half the people are uh, working full-time or more are earning $35,000 or less. Some of the companies that are hiring these are just trying to get away with these incredibly low wages. And we know wages have been stagnant really since the 1970s. It's flatlined for most uh, working people have have flatlined. They're not, they have not kept up with the rise in the cost of living. And uh, so they're suffering like that. But then you get companies like Walmart 
uh, which is a major employer in the country, they're paying such low wages that their workers qualify for public assistance to keep food on the table. So you have this corporation that's making billions of dollars for the privately owned Walton family there. And, uh, and the taxpayers are trying to are subsidizing these wealthy Walmart families because the taxpayers are having to pay for the, the food benefits for people who are working full time. Talk right. about that. Well, you drew that picture beautifully, Eleanor. It's exactly the case that, you know, taxpayers are subsidizing Walmart when we are paying for um, supplemental food assistance for their workers because Walmart pays so little. Think about that. You know, like, I feel like it seems very Dickensian. We have, on the one hand, we have this um, movement against an entitlement society, and yet here we are subsidizing um, corporations. And, and I think that that's a, a fundamental problem. Walmart is one of the largest employers in the country today. And one of the most profitable, thanks to you and me and all of the listeners who are helping to subsidize their workers so they don't starve to death while they work for them. That's tragic. That's, you know, it's really tragic. And I hope that when people read the book that they will be able to pull together these pieces and get fired up enough to make it a difference because this, we are at this moment in time where the corporate control of government has really capsized democracy. It's capsizing our efforts to fight the climate crisis. And we're in a world of trouble if we don't take hold of this situation ourselves, because I don't see, I don't see our elected officials for the most part, stepping in to do something. As you pointed out, there are a lot of great fighters in Congress, but they're not getting the leverage that they need right now. And we need to find some way to make that happen. Well, let's talk about that because I actually think your book could do similar to Michael Harrington, you know, kind of shock the nation into action to the war on poverty, which actually did succeed in lifting millions of people out of poverty. I think a lot of people don't realize that that actually worked. <laughs> Those programs worked a lot. So, um, but here we are now, and uh, the government's no longer having a war on poverty. They're having a war on the poor uh, and the middle class. So we have to take action here uh, if we want to reclaim our government. And you're right. The corporate influence on government makes it uh, makes everything worse. It makes the wealth inequality, which is at the core of the control of the government, it makes wealth inequality worse. Look at the 2017 tax bill passed by uh, then President Donald Trump and the Republicans, where 83% of the tax cuts went to the very wealthy individuals and corporations. Uh, you know, it just it, it it exacerbated the wealth inequality. It didn't at, it didn't at all try to uh, modulate that and help the working people in spite of all the rhetoric. So uh, at the corporate control of government makes dealing with the climate crisis hard. I mean, the Koch family has been perhaps the single biggest block in the world to humanity responding effectively to the existential threat of the global warming that we've got and the climate change that's happening all across the planet. They're still have a downward, even as we talk, they're fighting in Congress now because Cokes and the fossil fuel industry are trying to block what President Biden is trying to do about the climate crisis. So we need to take action here. Um, so you've thought long and deep about this. What do we do? Like, what's the solution? And you mentioned in your book, a range of possible actions you can take. And I should give the headline here is I love your phrase that the route to renewal runs through reckoning and repair, reckoning with our past 
and repairing relationships with those who have paid the steepest price. Can you talk a little about uh, that as a framework for our our action plan? Absolutely. Um, I asked people uh, that I was interviewing what vision they had for the future. So the end of the book where, where I talk about um, where do we go from here, um, there is a, I think I allotted myself a few pages at the very end, but for the most part, it's the vision of the people I interviewed, what they thought they needed. When I wrote about reckoning and renewal, it it was an effort to address this confluence of racism, colonialism, sexism, all of these um, devastations, you know, environmental devastation. People, poor people have carried the brunt of this, right? So if we look at how it is um, Native people, Indigenous people in this country have really been in a catastrophic circumstances since the occupation began and have been deprived of you know their internal colonies they've been deprived of their self-governance they've been deprived of their homelands and in order to make things right we can't pretend that never happened we can't pretend that the country wasn't built by enslaved persons doing labor on the uh, you know building the highways, creating the infrastructure of the country, slavery, um, colonial occupation, all of that needs to be accounted for to move forward. It's, there's no other way to do this, right? That all of you think of all of the ways that this country has benefited at the expense of others. We have to change that. We can't reform our way out of it. We have to kind of take it down and get honest. And I think that's why at this moment, the reactionary right is trying to ban critical race theory, trying to change the history of the United States to avoid addressing these issues because they see that's where it's coming, right? That's where we're coming from to try to create justice. Not wealth, but justice. And in order to do that, we need to address the reckoning and renewal, the repair of of all of the all of the people who have been disenfranchised. And it seems enormous and unwieldy. One of the things you know that I got, to, you know, I listened to all of the people. I thought about it myself, and I kept saying, "This is never going to happen." You know, like we can't even pass a voting rights bill. You know, like. How is this ever going to happen? And I realized that that voice of despair serves those in power, serves the oppression, serves our own exploitation. So am I willing to give up rather than to have hope? You know, is is hope that scary a thing to do? So if I really allow myself to be hopeful about the future, to think about what it is we need, I take I take a lot of heart from two women. One is Naomi Klein, who said, if it seems impossible to move forward from capitalism, remember that it once seemed impossible to move beyond the divine right of kings. And I love that because, you know, it's so easy to imagine what an impossibility it was to envision life beyond the divine right of kings. And part of hope is being able and willing to invest in an imaginative process that isn't constrained by, well, how is that going to happen, but is instead really focused on what is it that we need. When we figure out what it is that we need, and we do that work of reckoning and repair, that we have an opportunity then to create it in ways that we might not be able to imagine now. But if we're always limiting ourselves by how is that going to happen, we will never get out of where we are. We would still well, have the divine right of kings, right? Yeah. Well, I would say, I think, in terms of uh, reparations and repair, I have come to see it as uh, a moral 
and even spiritual necessity for the United States to come to grips with what has happened historically in our country. And I, I didn't start there. I actually was working for a presidential candidate who was for reparations for slavery. And I, she and I fought it out. And I was like, that's not going to work. People are going to hate it. The white working class, everybody else, they're going to like, you're giving to them, not to us. This is unfair. I didn't benefit from slavery. You know, I could just see it as a real loser mm. politically and a mess. Like, how do we actually do it? And she persuaded me based on the moral and spiritual principle that when a wrong has happened, when harm has been inflicted, you will never get beyond that harm and the the outflow from that harm until you admit what was done and apologize for it and make amends for it. You know, and it's part of, I think, the Alcoholics Anonymous, the 10 step recovery program, right? I mean, I haven't been in it, but that's what I hear about. You've got to admit what you did wrong, the harm you caused to people, apologize for it and make amends for it in whatever way you can in order to be able to move forward. And I don't think America will ever deal effectively with the kind of the black stain of racism, uh, if you will, until we have some version of that, uh, that acknowledgement and, and, and apology and making amends. So I think um, we've got to do it. You know, having said that, I think it's very complicated. And I also think, you know, like lots of people have a claim on some kind of reparation. Of course, the Native American people and we, you know, we can't give back all the land that was taken from them. But what can we do? And that needs to be addressed. And nobody has talked about this, but I think we probably should have reparations for women because women have been, you know, treated as property of the men, the father, the husband, their wages were taken by their husband or father if they worked um, and their labor was, you know, taken all by the the husband or the father, the male in the picture. So and I would have no idea how to begin with reparations for women or even no, that's not even part of the conversation at the moment. But but anyway, we don't have to figure that all out today. I do think I just want to make the principle that it's important to admit what happened, apologize and make amends where possible, right? Yeah, I think that uh, you're right that it is a moral and spiritual issue. It's also a very concrete material issue when you look at the differences between black and white wealth, um, that the whole nation has facilitated the acquisition of wealth among white families. Um, it's disproportionate and it's devastating. So, you know, and that's true with, when you look at native, you have mentioned native people, we can't give back, we can't, well, I guess we could, but no one's going to give back the whole country, but to give back the all of the national parks to indigenous people for their care would make it a better, better place for parks and it would restore a lot of um, important value into the lives of native people to take we have laws on the books now that were created at the time of the of colonization that deprive native people of their sovereignty and we haven't taken them off and we're still using them right they were the basis of john Hughes torture memos in the Bush administration, and they were the basis of Trump's anti-Muslim um, ban, right? They go, the government goes back to those laws because they are so oppressive. They haven't been taken off the books at all. So there's, there are a lot of things that can be done in very concrete ways um, to restore self-governance and land to indigenous peoples, to um, close the wealth gap uh, for Black families and to address, uh, I suspect, you know, women's rights would just be a good thing even today, right? There's uh, so many ways that we could improve the lives of all women 
And, you know, those conversations are important to have. Uh, the, the second woman that inspires me so much here is Winona LaDuc, who said, let us be the ancestors that our descendants will thank. And to live with that focus would, would bring different choices into, into clarity for us. And I really, I really think those two pieces, when I feel hopeless, like, oh, you know, things are so hard and it looks to me that they're going to get much harder before they get better. I remember those two things. You know, we have moved past the divine right of kings and I do want to be the ancestor my descendants will thank. And that helps to keep a deep rudder in the water for me when things get really tough. Right. That's very inspirational. And yes, we are beyond the divine right of kings. <laughs> Donald Trump wants to bring <laughs> us back there, but I just want to tip my hat to Thomas Paine uh, in the colonies in the 1770s was the one when he wrote Common Sense and uh, the Treaties on Human Rights and uh, so many wonderful writings. It was Thomas Paine who powerfully made the case for the colonies to say we should break off from England because we hear reject not just King George, who is currently on the throne of England. We reject the whole notion of the divine right of kings. And we believe in governance of, by, and for the people. And Thomas Paine really put that out powerfully. And George Washington had his essay, Common Sense, read to all the troops. And it really was, uh, that's what turned it. And when the United States turned its back on the divine right of kings and that kind of happened. But we do need to watch out because I'm oh, I'm not joking. Donald Trump wants to bring us back and we're seeing the rise of autocrats um, and authoritarianism around the world. And he is beating on the door to come back in the presidential election of 2024 and laying the groundwork and working very actively for that. So those of us who care about going beyond the divine right of kings and care about democracy and care about addressing all these issues of wealth inequality and the control of the top 1% really need to be aware that problem has not gone away. It's festering just below the surface and is going to come back and haunt us um, soon. But uh, speaking of Trump, what, you were talking with a lot of people who the conventional wisdom says it's these lower income whites that are the base for Donald Trump. Did you see that when you were talking to them or what did you find? What did they think about Trump who actually did nothing for them, but actually greased the palm of all his 1% friends? It's what you say is absolutely true that, um, White struggling families, especially those in Appalachia, have become the face of the Trump movement. But I didn't meet people who were really who liked Trump at all. In fact, I met more people who did not than who did. And when you look, um, when I did the research, to, like, how does this happen? Because Trump has done an amazing amount of fundraising. And, you know, $70,000 for a photograph with him, $100,000 for a dinner with him. That's not poor people. That's not struggling families who are filling those bills. All of that fundraising is coming from wealthy people. And what I found in my research was that um, so-called uneducated, poor white uh, people were the face of the movement, but wealthy white people were the fundraising, uh, the money behind the movement and obscured because of the focus that gets placed on, um, you know, it's, it's these poor, uneducated people, right? Most of, I think 70% of, sorry, my cat has come up here. 70% of Republican voters do not have a college degree. That's not new. That is exactly as it has been. So when we talk about Trump voters being the so-called uneducated, you'd have to say all Republican voters are uneducated if a college degree is your standard. I don't happen to agree with that, 
Um, uh, I think that's a very uh, skewed way of looking at it. But uh, it's definitely the wealthy white people who have funded Trump. And the studies that have been done that have shown that what voters had in common who supported Trump was anti-Black racism, not poverty, not a lack of education, but anti-Black racism. And we know that crosses every economic class. In the election results, when um, those have been sorted through, even um, in the most recent election, Trump always does really well among the economic elite and less well among the poorer people, poor and middle, that middle income bracket. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Well, I, you know, I think I think that Trump's um, path to the White House, if there is one, is being waged through chaos. Right, the more chaos that he and the Trumpsters create, the more desire there is for an authoritarian force, whether that's police or um, uh, an authoritarian. Uh, President, I, you know, I, you know, it's, it's. I think that's the the route of all of the things that I'm seeing in the country that are generating massive amounts of chaos. Are you know the um, critical anti-critical race theory, which is not being has never been taught in K through 12, but now it's this big movement to suspend, you know, ban teaching that it's never been taught. So what is it that's actually happening? Or the people who are preventing mask mandates, who are preventing mandates for vaccinations uh, around the pandemic, but then turning over and saying, well, hey, try um, vermectin, this uh, horse dewormer, or try these you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine, things that we know don't work. Mm -hmm. They're doing that within their own, among their own constituents. And that creates an enormous amount of chaos that I believe is more valuable to the far right than the constituents themselves, because that chaos is creating the need for a more authoritarian response. Right. I think you're right. You know, Trump wants chaos so he can be the authoritarian figure that kind of says, I'm going to bring order, I'll restore order here. Um, the other person who wants chaos in the United States, of course, is Putin and Russia. And he's doing all he can to fan the flames of chaos in the United States. And obviously, starting back in 2015, uh, with his interference on behalf of Trump getting elected, which has not stopped. Uh, he's continues to fan the flames and a lot of the problems you see uh, on Facebook and other social media, you dig down a couple of levels. It's actually, it's the Russians trying to uh, create, they don't really care what the issue is. They just want chaos. So it will weaken the United States and then Russia can become the preeminent world power. That's what he wants. So that's where the interests of Trump and Putin align on wanting chaos in the United States. And it's kind of scary. <laughs> you, know, well, it's, you know, it's terrifying. And in the in the midst of all of this is, you know, the people's daily efforts to pay the bills. There's the looming climate um, catastrophe. It feels like, you know, we're already in the crisis. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do we look at all of that? How do we face that and stay hopeful? Because we will never solve that from a place of, um, giving up. We, we can't stop or we just accept it. So how do we do that? I think that's a critical question for us now, not a kind of, you know, phony optimism, but a radical hope that trusts in our own ability to make something better out of what we have. Right. And your book is really good in terms of some of the solutions you propose. Basically, I think of them in two buckets. One is the political changes we need. And you're talking about dealing with the gerrymandering and the voter suppression. And uh, we need publicly financed campaigns to defang 
the power of the rich people over our candidates and elected officials. So there's a whole set of political actions we need to take. And then the other bucket is the economic. What do we do to increase the wealth of the other 90%, basically? Uh, as you're talking about um, the top 1% owns more than 90% of the rest of the people. Well, let's get more money in the hands of those 90%. So uh, we can actually, if we just reverse most tax laws that have been passed in the past 30 years, we, we would be on the right track. <laughs> just like yes, talk, yes, we would. talk about undoing the harm. <laughs> and by the way, uh, two things I think you'd be interested in. One is I had my guest a couple of weeks ago was a Wall Street, a former Wall Street executive, multi multimillionaire who now is the head of patriotic millionaires. And he's all for tax reform that takes the money from the one percent and brings it to the 90 percent. Um, and it, I think you would be inspired to see that we that we have some friends there in the one percent who recognize the way this is going is bad for everyone, including the 1%. Uh, right. They're not going to make it um, because, you know, the, how do companies make money? They make money from customers buying their products. And if you squeeze people enough, they don't have money to buy your products. You have fewer customers and fewer profits. So let's take that money and spread it around and, and more companies will thrive. So that's kind of one is check out that interview uh, with Morris Pearl of Patriotic Millionaires. And the second thing I want to tell you is I'm actually writing a book. You talked about we need to, you know, think about how do we get from here to there is very hard. At least keep focused on the vision of what we want and keep working towards it. I'm actually writing a book that's I consider is a bridge book of how, here's the vision of what we want. And it's pretty straightforward. You know, when you want people to be economically secure, good housing, affordable healthcare, good education, be able to retire in dignity without being afraid of poverty. It's like, okay, how do we get there? We all agree this is what we want. How do we get there? So that's what I'm attempting to lay out and it includes some of the political reform. So you can imagine it's taking a while to finish this book, but <laughs> I keep hope. <laughs> it will be timely whenever it arrives. It's a, it's a good charge. Very good charge. Yeah. So we have just a minute left. I don't know if there's anything you uh, would like to say, any kind of final comment before we sign off. Um, I think that we can't change anything until we look at it. And I hope that Living on the Edge offers your audience, our audience, an opportunity to look squarely at what's happening in the spirit of being able to transform it. Because I know that it can be a difficult read, but it's also, I think, uh, a very uplifting read if you're thinking about where do we go from here. Is recognizing where we are that's a little bit of a bummer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. But you're right. We have to start from what's real. Otherwise, you're just creating sandcastles in the sky. And I, I should tell you, I was so excited about your book. Um, and I, I talked to my husband, who actually worked very closely with Michael Harrington. And uh, uh, Michael Harrington came to our wedding, in fact. Uh, so... I said to my husband, Jack, I said, well, this reminds me of the other America, except instead of, you know, a small number of people that were living in these terrible circumstances, we're not talking about the most common experience in the United States, uh, which I have a chapter on that in my book. You're the first one I've seen to actually talk about, like, the majority of people are struggling. We're not just talking about poverty, small group. We're talking about economic uh, struggles as the predominant experience in the United States right now. So I said, well, I think what we need to do is he and I will write something about your book and put it in a magazine, which is how 
That's how the other American got known. It wasn't from the book itself. Someone wrote an article about it that was in the New Yorker magazine that caught the attention of Senator John Kennedy or President uh, John Kennedy and quite a number of people. So anyway, we'll see. Uh, I, but I do want your book to be known and read for our listeners. Um, it's called Living on the Edge. And uh Unfortunately, that is all the time we have right now, but I have so enjoyed the conversation. It's uh, Celine Marie Pascal, author of Living on the Edge. Thank you so much for writing this book and for being with us today. Thank you very much, Eleanor. It's my pleasure. So, listeners, in case you missed any of our programs, they're available in the archives. Our theme song is Let's Give Them Something to Talk About, sung by Bonnie Raitt. I'll be back next Thursday. Thanks for joining us. This is Eleanor Lacane with All Together Now. <laughs>